Ora I'm Shan Harris and welcome to the first episode in a series of podcasts that tell the story of Nye Bevan's fight to create the NHS. It's based on the research that was carried out for the audio drama Getting Better, an Audible original. You'll hear some excerpts from this as we go along. This year, in 2023, the NHS celebrates its 75th anniversary. For most of us, it's always been there, so we often take it for granted. We can't imagine what it would be like to be faced with a bill for an ambulance or an operation. Nor can we comprehend the agony of waiting to discover that our insurance policy doesn't cover our treatment due to a pre-existing condition. We certainly can't comprehend a system where children are not covered at all. At the general election of 1945, no political party could ignore the fact that something had to be done. Although, that didn't stop some of them from trying. And there is a huge difference between sketching out grand plans in an election manifesto and actually committing to the means required to make them a reality. Just look at social care today. Reforms have been promised in numerous manifestos, but as of 2023, their delivery has once again been deferred, waiting for a time when the country is deemed able to afford it. This is referred to as financial common sense, but history marks it for what it is, a delaying tactic. Because in order to make the NHS a reality in the first place, the government had to defy common sense, especially considering the circumstances they found themselves in 1945. Financial common sense said that Britain was broke, genuinely flat broke, bankrupted by the war. The economy was only kept afloat by a loan from the Americans, and the country was damaged by the German bombing. Indeed, the country was in such dire straits that rationing had grown more severe than during the war itself. Even bread had to be rationed between 1946 and 1948. When you consider that in the first year, the Chancellor didn't even know how much the NHS would cost, it really was a high-stakes gamble. The policy also defied political common sense, as those intended to staff the health service, particularly the doctors, were so set against it that it was considered futile to build. And then there was moral common sense, which suggested that anything offered for free would be abused by the public and soon sink beneath the weight of unrealistic expectations. There was one man who disagreed, Anairin or Nye Bevan. Here's Nye himself talking about the NHS in the lead-up to the 1959 general election. Now, I'm proud about the National Health Service. It's a piece of real socialism. It's a piece of real Christianity too, you know. We had to wait a long time for it. What I had in mind when we organized the National Health Service in 1946 to 1958, and remember when we did it, you know, you you younger ones, this is immediately after the end of the Second World War, when we had to deal with a colossal number of problems, when we were still impoverished by the war, when we were, as Sir Winston Churchill then said, a bankrupt nation. But nevertheless, we did these things. And there is nowhere in any nation in the world, communist or capitalist, any health service to compare with it. 
it ought to be better than it is. Oh, by a long way, yes, but it's your damn fault. I don't mean you as an uh, individual. Nye believed that in the long term, it would be more expensive not to have a health service. And frankly, rather than being dissuaded by it, he relished the political battle he knew he would face. Perhaps most importantly, he had a far more optimistic view of human nature and of the parliament and politics in which he still had faith. But the question remains, how on earth did he and his team manage to succeed? This is precisely what we asked ourselves when we wrote Getting Better, the ten-part audio drama that relates the extraordinary series of events leading to the difficult birth of the NHS and the remarkable paths of its proud parents, Anirian Bevan and his wife, Jenny Lee. And the answer was just as inspiring as we imagined. Needless to say, casting the right person in the central role of Nye Bevan was key. Fortuitously, the drama's producers came across a newspaper interview in which Rod Gilbert, my husband, was asked to list his heroes. Coming in at number one, Nye Bevan. A phone call was made, and despite being nervous about tackling such a vital role, after many conversations with me, his wife, in the end, Rod simply couldn't turn the opportunity down. It's hard to put into words how it felt to read as Nye in a year in which the NHS has cemented itself as the lifeblood of the nation, been awarded the George Cross for its seven decades of service to us all, and the year in which my own dear father died in its arms in a care home. At the time of recording, we had absolutely no idea how much we personally would need the NHS in the following two years. Rod was diagnosed with head and neck cancer and has been through the mill, including surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, under the faultless care of the amazing teams at the Valindra Cancer Centre in Cardiff. Rod is getting better, all the time, and is in fact planning a new fundraising trek in Morocco, climbing to the highest point of the Atlas Mountains in North Africa. So here, in the 75th year of the NHS, we'd like to share with you the research into how it was created. Nye himself was very sceptical of biographies. He was fond of saying, all history is gossip. Then again, he also said... This is my truth. Now tell me yours. So, Nye, here is our truth. Prime Minister, you asked to see me. Mr Bevan, we said we would bring in free healthcare. Now I need you to make it happen. Can you carry it? Or am I making a mistake? No mistake. I'm the right man for the job. Now, kindly do your best not to bugger it up with that mouth of yours. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Operator, I need Park Hospital immediately. This is an emergency. Why is this patient not in surgery? This is a compound fracture. The treatment is clear. In cases like this, you take the leg. There are other options. There's a new treatment. The fact of the matter is they can't afford it. Afford it? Is that the only reason that you didn't... If you don't stop wasting time, we won't even save her life, let alone her leg. Damn it, Nye, I agree. You agree? But I'm not sure you know what you're up against. The Treasury, the Tories... The medical establishment... Are your own party. There is nothing the Labour Party does better or with more imagination than infighting. And shooting itself in the bloody foot. Which is usually in its mouth. You're declaring war, Minister. This could ruin all of our careers and still leave us back where we started. I know. 
But are you prepared to go on knowing you had a chance, even a slim one, to provide health care for all, and you walked away? Are you going to allow me to do my job, to take this woman's leg but save her life? Or are you willing to risk it to salve your own ego? Do you want your legacy to be almost changing the face of medicine in this country? What's it to be? Will you help me create a national health service? Oh, stop singing and shut that door. Getting better is a drama, and we hope an exciting one. But the true story is no less exhilarating. The stories of real-life doctors and nurses, politicians and patients, are as varied and vital as anything a script could conjure. We'd like to share those stories now. There will, of course, be the occasional spoiler, not least the fact that everyone's struggle was successful. The NHS was passed by Parliament and still exists 75 years later, working to keep the country safe. That said, having helped us through the pandemic so heroically, the service is under more pressure than ever. One of the initial fears when creating the NHS was that after the Second World War, as many as 460,000 people were waiting for treatment, and it was thought this would swamp the new system. Today, following the pandemic, 7.1 million people are on waiting lists and the NHS continues to fight on. At such a critical time in its history, it is always worth remembering what life was like before the NHS and what many people in the rest of the world still have to face, where free healthcare for all is just a pipe dream. So to start off, who exactly is our hero, Nye Bevan? Over to you, Winston. You'll be putting together your cabinet, I suppose. Let me guess. Morrison, the Deputy Prime Minister? As a matter of fact, yes. Keeping your friends close and your enemies closer, eh? I approve. And what about that nuisance of yours? I'm afraid I don't know who you... No, don't dissemble, man. You know exactly who I mean. I'm undecided. I might offer Mr Bevan a little something. So that Welsh terrier, having dipped at my heels all through the war, now gets a seat at the table? Well, Clement, let me say to you that if you put that intolerable mouthpiece in your cabinet, you'll find yourself with worse problems than a blocked pipe. I have every confidence. No, you don't. It's divisive. He'd fight with his own shadow. Not his fault, of course. It's where he comes from. Hot little girl straight from the pits of South Wales. Let him talk and it'll cost you. I'm certain that Naren Bevan will always speak in the manner expected of the high government office. And furthermore... The hard truth is that Nye was not an obvious nor popular choice for Attlee's cabinet. He was seen as a troublemaker. But, as it would turn out... A troublemaker is precisely what the NHS needed. Millions may have wanted it, but it took a determined personality to see off those powerful voices who didn't, not least the doctors. So what was so special? His background, for one thing. Here's Rod again. The wonderful thing about Nye as a character, and I'm sure as a man, is that no matter how far he travelled or how far he progressed in his career, he never forgot where he came from or what that meant. Nye was born in Tredegar, into a coal mining family, working in the most militant coal field in Britain. His parents had ten children, only five of whom survived, a tragedy so common at the time. At school, he was bullied by his sadistic headmaster. Amongst other abuses, left-handed Nye was forced to use his right hand. 
This treatment is thought to have contributed to the stammer, which Nye struggled with all his life. His friend, Michael Foote, once said, How did you cure your stammer, Nye? Bevan replied, By torturing my audiences. In fact, he practised his speeches by reading them aloud while pacing up and down. He'd always have synonyms to hand in case his stammer rendered any words unsayable, an early sign of his strength of character. Nye worked down the pit himself, having left school at ten years of age. Socialism was a fact of life among colliers in South Wales, and Nye was part of a union that organised its own health service between the wars. He was self-taught, but far better versed in literature, history and philosophy than the average MP. Nor was he shy to use his learning, both to win an argument against an opponent and to demonstrate the intellectual capacity of his class. He loved and hated fiercely. He was generous and petulant. He was hedonistic and puritanical. He was also conscious, perhaps overly conscious, of his legacy, how he would feature in history's unfolding narrative. The stakes were always high for Bevan. Although a staunch socialist, he was never a communist. He believed in Parliament as a powerful institution and a key method for transforming lives. For his early thoughts on health policy for Britain, he had the example of the Tredegar Workmen's Medical Aid Society from which to draw. Founded by colliers and steelworkers, it offered free health care to subscribing members at the point of use. At first, this was confined to the male workforce, but was later extended to anyone living in the town. The society employed five doctors, a surgeon, a pharmacist, a dentist, a midwife and a district nurse. During the Depression, it provided medical services for 22,800 people in Tredega. It's no surprise for such a fierce local patriot as Bevan that he said to the country at the initiation of his NHS plans, We are going to Tredegarise you. Of course, even someone as extraordinary as Nye couldn't accomplish such a monumental task on his own. Fortunately, he was surrounded by equally gifted people, starting at home. Jenny Lee was an equally powerful political figure in her own right. She married Nye Bevan in 1934, but her life and her role in the story expand far beyond the confines of their personal relationship. They are saying... That to launch the NHS in six months is impossible. They're telling us no. Well, if there is one thing we've learned from the first aid nursing yeomanry unit, it is that we won't take no for an answer. Support your country. Support your patients. Support the National Health Service. That was... Incredible. When they tell the story of what we did here, remember that the NHS was not birthed by its father alone. Jenny's political career was extraordinary by any measure. The daughter of a Scottish miner, she was elected to Parliament in 1929, five years before she was entitled to vote. She was more left-wing even than Nye, and even more of a rebel. As a backbench MP in 1945, she ceded the limelight to her husband, but never ceased to advise him and cajole him in public. Here's Neve McIntosh, who plays Jenny Lee in Getting Better. 
When you look at Jenny's life, the things she accomplished, both alongside Nye and in her own right, it's astonishing that her picture isn't on banknotes and, and things herself. It's true that during this period it was her husband who got the lion's share of the attention, a sad reflection on the times, and something we still haven't entirely eradicated. But there's one thing Jenny never was, and that was subservient. Indeed, it was only after Nye died that Jenny was able to fulfil her early promise, at least in the public eye. Harold Wilson appointed her as the first ever arts minister in the 1964 Labour government. But her defining achievement, perhaps, was the creation of the Open University. She also oversaw the expansion of the Arts Council and served as Minister of State for the Department of Education and Sciences. I mean, just think about it. From one household's work, we got the NHS and the Open University. Both outstanding achievements. They both achieved an offering equal access to previously inequitable services, health and education. Jenny was what is sometimes, often uncharitably, described as a character. And whilst a fantastic and inspirational public speaker, her civil service team and many others thought her to be an impossible woman. Jenny wrote a wonderful book, My Life with Nye, in which she aimed to dispel the myths about her husband and herself. Patricia Hollis's book, Jenny Lee, A Life, also gives a delightful sense of her character. The latter recounts a story that tells us much about this incredible woman's approach to life. In her 80s, Jenny had one of her last birthdays in bed, surrounded by friends, slightly surprised to still be alive. After a fair amount of champagne, Jenny decided she would use the bathroom. She got out of bed, stark naked. She never slept in nightclothes. Her guests turned scarlet. Jenny was genuinely puzzled. I was born with nothing on. I will go out with nothing on. Where are you meeting them? At the Café Royal, as it happens. The sort of place a handsome young man might propose to an extremely lucky young woman. Now... Do you care about that? Don't bring it up with Dr Hill, for goodness sake. I remember it being a rather dirty business in its own right. Respectable now, though, aren't we? Marriage is like a bathtub. Often used, seldom clean. Cleans you right up with the voters. Particularly the Scots. Very high-minded lot. Oh, you should know you live with three of them. With the greatest of respect to your family. Thank heavens I'm only married to one. And now you're proposing again at the Café Royal. Will you make me the happiest Minister for Health in the world and grant me your support in the formation of a truly national health service. I suggest getting them drunk. It worked last time. So how did this power couple of the early 20th century come to be? It certainly wasn't love at first sight. Not on Jenny's side, anyway. In fact, when they first met in Parliament, she remarked, You know, Nye, we could be brother and sister. Nye's mischievous response, yes, with a tendency towards incest. At the time, sex outside of marriage was unofficially regulated by both the social stigma associated with potential illegitimacy and also by family doctors refusing to provide contraceptive advice outside of marriage. The Labour Party saw things no differently to the Conservatives and all policies were aimed towards stable, secure family units. When Nye first met Jenny, she was deeply in love with another married MP called Frank Wise. Jenny's book, My Life with Nye, highlights their intense relationship. 
the two of them travelling to communist Russia where he worked. They enjoyed adventures such as climbing expeditions. Nonetheless, despite Frank's wife being aware of the affair, divorce was not deemed an option. The question, however, became moot in 1934, when Frank died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. A month later, now involved with Jenny himself, Nye took her out to one of his favourite haunts, the Café Royale. Though hardly rich, Nye ordered champagne and oysters. Jenny was shocked at the cost, but Nye quipped, You can always live like a millionaire for five minutes. The luxurious meal, however, was not at the forefront of his mind. Eventually, he announced that they must get married. Neither would be re-elected if people found out they were ever living in sin. They both agreed there was no point handicapping themselves by defying conventions. As a result, Jenny and Nye married in 1934. Over time, they enjoyed a loving and warm marriage. Jenny's parents, Ma and Da Lee, lived with them, and Ma Lee would look after them all, especially Nye, whom they adored. Nye would often tell guests that he had to marry the girl in order to get the mother-in-law. With multiple battles on the horizon, their home life was crucially important. In Jenny's words, Nye's happiness and well-being meant more to me than my own, and my happiness and well-being meant more to Nye than his own. They each had each other's support to drive through real change. To fully understand the urgency of the efforts of Nye and his team, it's important to reflect on what healthcare was truly like before the NHS. What's that one you're reading? Every woman. And I'm not sure you can call it reading. Yours? Women's Illustrated. If you want to reach women, you need to understand them. To which end, Nye Bevan, you need all the help you can get. But this is drivel. Health is everywhere in these pages. Everywhere. Health and well-being. We should advertise the NHS like a face cream. Why not? Thousands of mothers, grandmothers, working women, nurses, for heaven's sake, read these things. You think the Prime Minister's going to give us the money to put NHS registration slips in the pages of Stitchcraft Weekly? <sighs> read the letters page. Here. Dear Doctor, please can you help me with constipation, rheumatism, varicose veins, ulcerated legs? These are the people crying out for the NHS to start. Before the NHS, if you were ill it was advisable to also be wealthy. Indeed, as Nye and Jenny highlight, healthcare for the vast majority of Britons was a hit-and-miss affair. For some, there was private insurance. For others, for a long time, there was very little. In 1911, the Welsh wizard, David Lloyd George, launched something else we often take for granted, the National Insurance Act. This created the panel system, the first milestone on the road to a welfare state in Britain. It was a major piece of social reform that gave many working-class men national health insurance for the first time in their lives. But crucially, it did not cover their wives or their children. Consequently, they went to the back of the queue. In truth, a veil of silence was drawn over this issue. Women's health problems, in particular, were treated as something of a dirty secret in Britain before the NHS. Some of that secret was unearthed in 1939 in a book called Working Class Wives, Their Health and Conditions by Marjorie Spring Rice, an incredible document about human endurance. Here's the wonderful Annette Badland reading an excerpt from the book 
describing a Mrs B from Paddington. She occupies two parlours of a four-storied house in a very thickly populated district. Her husband is a scavenger. She has to go downstairs for her water and also to empty the dirty water away. She is 48. She has had 13 children and one miscarriage. Seven children live at home now. Three are away and three have died. She has no leisure and a very poor diet. She gets up at six and goes to bed at eleven. She said she is usually fit and well, and to the question, is your day's work too hard for you? She answers, oh no. There were plenty of women like Mrs B in Spring Rice's book. Very few of them reported health problems. It was very much a case of mustn't grumble, but the many things about which they were not grumbling included anemia, malnutrition, rheumatism, rotten teeth, ulcerated legs, neuralgia, bad eyesight, and, a recurrent problem, internal trouble, usually followed by the designation nature unspecified. This generally meant untreated, sometimes life-threatening, gynaecological problems. Marjorie Springrice concluded that the vast majority of working-class women in Britain simply expected to be chronically ill after the age of 30 and accepted it as a fact of life. And of the 1,250 women surveyed, only 13 were covered by the National Insurance Act. As for the children, family budgets were understandably often spent on their medical problems before those of their mothers. In the poorer districts of Britain, there was a heavy reliance on folk remedies where children were concerned. Stewed comfrey leaves for sprains, whelk shells for earache, and kids lined up next to furnaces mixing tarmac for the roads so they could breathe in the bitumen fumes. That cured asthma. And tapeworms, apparently. Of course, this sort of medicine had the enormous recommendation of being free, as Mark Gatiss, who plays surgeon Mr Kane in Getting Better, describes. This was a time when people quite literally did for themselves in terms of medicine. Cures and treatments passed down from generation to generation with varying efficacy, but all with the benefit that they didn't rely on the medical establishment that had either outright ignored them or priced themselves out of the family's ability to access them. Of the 20,000 GPs in Britain, about 15,000 took panel patients under the National Insurance Fund in doing so, they found themselves cut off from their hospital colleagues, and so a two-tier system was created, not just for patients, but for doctors. In some of the most depressed areas in the 1930s, Glamorgan in South Wales, Tyneside, for instance, or the East End of London, many GPs might themselves be living quite near the poverty line. One of Nye's core concerns was the evolution of what was often referred to as the postcode lottery. If you lived in an area like Kensington, there were seven times as many GPs as there were, for example, in South Shields on Tyneside. And this was not because the people of Kensington had a greater level of medical need. As for hospitals, there were broadly two types, voluntary and municipal. The municipal hospitals were run by local government and were usually poor law hospitals that had been handed over to county councils after the 1929 Local Government Act. Some of these institutions in London and Edinburgh were of reasonable quality. 
most weren't. An influential 1937 report by the Political and Economic Planning Group noted widespread popular reluctance to enter former poor law hospitals because of the stigma. These were places you went to die. The voluntary hospitals could be even worse. Because they relied on charity, funds were often irregular and unpredictable, preventing hospitals from effectively planning ahead. Also, as historian Nick Hayes recently wrote, placing charity and hospital together in the same sentence generated negative connotations in the working-class mind. The voluntaries also required all but the poorest patients to contribute to their own care, whether that was towards the surgeon's fee, the bed, the food, the nursing. There are many shocking examples, but Professor Sir Vernon Bogdanow, in his Gresham College lecture, highlights the story of a pregnant mother who, on entering a hospital, was asked if she could make a contribution. She said she could not. She had little enough, and what she had, she'd need for the baby. Sadly, the baby was stillborn. And the response a few hours later was, Well, you won't be needing that money now. Can you contribute it instead to the hospital? Groucho Marx once quipped that a hospital bed in America was a parked taxi with the meter running. Before the NHS, that's how patients in Britain saw them too. Here's Mark Gatiss again. You only have to look across the the ocean to America to see what the repercussions are of, of having a totally different system and all the people who fall through the cracks. I think we just we obviously just take it so much for granted. Unfortunately, that leads to a kind of seeping contempt that, that means that we can clap on the doorstep one minute and then deny uh, health workers uh, a decent living a few months later. That's where we are at the moment. So um, it's something we should be incredibly proud of. It's one of the very best things this country has ever done. And in the the mire of corruption we currently find ourselves, it's one of the few shining citadels left, to quote A.J. Cronin. The Citadel was a novel written by physician A.J. Cronin and published by left-wing publisher Victor Galance in 1937. It concerned a young GP called Andrew Manson, who practised both in the economically depressed South Wales and, for a time, amongst rich and wealthy clients in Harley Street. Most bestsellers of the period were love stories or detective stories. A medical story was considered to be a publishing risk. But in 1938, according to a Gallup poll, the Citadel impressed more people in Britain than any other book except the Bible. More copies were sold than any other hardback novel of the decade, it became a hugely popular film starring Robert Donat. What the book, and even more, the film showed, was how demoralising it was for GPs to practice in such a rotten system, how corrupting panel work could be, and how the commercial basis of medicine had become responsible for a situation in which rich doctors, driven by a desire for money, exploited the hypochondria of their patients and encouraged illnesses where none existed. Here's Catherine Drysdale, who played Dr Ava Calloway in the drama, reading what Cronin wrote of the West End doctors. There are too many jackals. It's the jackals who give all the unnecessary injections, whip out the tonsils and appendices that aren't doing any harm, play ball amongst one another with their patients, split fees, perform abortions, back up pseudo-scientific remedies, chase the guineas all the time. 
Nobody, he adds, but the good old BP, British public, would put up with it. Half the hospitals are shrieking that they are falling down. And what are we doing about it? Collecting pennies. The last remark was a reference to the flag days that many hospitals held, usually in summer. Nurses and junior doctors went out amongst the public to shake tins and hand out pins to anyone willing to throw some coppers their way. Nothing seemed to capture the parlous state of British medicine better than Flag Day. As one Manchester nurse said before the war, it might take one day of bad weather to destroy the finances of the hospital for a year. Those organising Flag Days prayed for sunshine when the nurses went collecting. Here's what Sir Marcus Setchell, former obstetrician and the former surgeon-gynaecologist to Queen Elizabeth's royal household has to say. The Citadel, a book that might today seem like an imaginative description of a long-gone age now, but The Citadel was a modern story about modern problems of the time. Every reader or cinema-goer was seeing events like flag days to fundraise for health care. They were common to their everyday lives. But now they were seeing behind the curtain as well, in a way that had never been written about before. If the Citadel outlined the problems afflicting the British medical services in fictional form, another bestseller, four years later, proposed a possible solution. This 1942 work concerned social insurance, one of the driest subjects known to man. It was published by His Majesty's Stationery Office, and on the day of publication, people queued round the block to get their hands on it. Its full title was Social Insurance and Allied Services, Command Paper 6404. It is popularly known as the Beverage Report. It really was a bestseller, up there in 1942 with Enid Blyton's Five Go to Treasure Island and Agatha Christie's A Body in the Library. Of course, Britain was at the time at war with Germany and the Axis powers and, following the Battle of El Alamein, its people were starting to think about the future. What would Britain look like after the war was over? Beveridge's work was technical, but his answers had nonetheless the power to enthrall. This is because he went beyond his remit to attack what he called the five giants. Ignorance, idleness, squalor, want and disease. It was Beveridge's attack on disease that sparked discussions about a national health service, possibly sustained by insurance contributions, possibly by general taxation. At the same time, a number of prominent ministers in Churchill's coalition government poured cold water on the paper schemes now being worked up. The Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Kingsley Wood, said there were no money trees available for what Beveridge wanted following the war. Many in this country, he said, have persuaded themselves that the cessation of hostilities will mark the opening of the Golden Age. However this may be, the time for declaring a dividend on the profits of the Golden Age is the time when those profits have been realised in fact, not merely in imagination. By 1945, however, the British people had decided they wanted a visionary, not an accountant, to lead them into peace. They wanted a Golden Age. 
Sir Kingsley Wood's hands were no longer on the purse strings when Nye Bevan created the NHS. So, in 1945, the British wanted peace. They wanted change for the better. But did they want an NHS? Politicians like to talk, but they've never been good at listening. At least not to folk like us. That Dr Hughes put you up to this, didn't he? Why do you say that? Those socialist types are all the same. They're not happy thinking a thing. They need everyone else to think it. Then Dr Hughes will be disappointed. He supports an iron Bevan. I don't. Today, the NHS is probably the most beloved of all British institutions. But in 1945, did people want the NHS in the first place? The question is not as ridiculous as it might now sound. One of the earliest advocates for a national health service was a Stepney doctor called Harry Roberts. Roberts was a member of the Labour Party and in 1923 produced a book for the Labour publishing company called A National Health Policy. Not all his ideas made it into Bevan's legislation, but some certainly did. But what's interesting about Dr Harry Roberts's crystal ball gazing back in 1923 is that he believed it would be the general public and not the vested interests of the medical profession which might prove the greatest obstacle to creating a health service. This was because people's imaginations often failed them when it came to medicine. As an East End doctor, Roberts was used to seeing grave illnesses born of neglect and deprivation. But he was also used to hearing wild misconceptions about healthcare and far-fetched theories about medicine. It is rather a startling fact, he wrote, that probably three quarters of our people are still living, so far as scientific knowledge goes, in the 13th century, if not earlier. For Roberts, as for many health reformers, there could be no effective political demand for a health service if there remained widespread public ignorance. And that's if people had an opinion. Many simply didn't care. One survey found that EastEnders, that's to say folk in the most blitzed area in Britain, were broadly indifferent to the question. Though Bethnal Greeners were reported to be riddled with backdoor insurance touts who seemed to prey on the poverty and ignorance of the people, many took a perverse pride in refusing to bother their heads about social welfare arrangements. In this sense, no referendum would have been likely to generate enthusiasm for a national health service. The idea had to come from idealistic politicians instead. Public opinion had to be educated, developed, not simply followed. Nye Bevan, of course, was a great educator. Not a man who would bow to public opinion if he thought it wrong. His case for a health service certainly rested on the notion that there was a lot of silent pain in the country. That meant people who were ill but didn't grumble, who accepted their lot. Nye wanted them to grumble. He wished they were as scandalised as he was, that the living often inherited the spectacles and dentures of the dead. His job, in any case, was to articulate the needs of the people, even where those needs could appear fuzzy and confused in the mouths of the people themselves. It was all part of an attack on what he believed to be the culture of low expectations a culture which, it appeared, might be in the interest of every budget-conscious government to encourage. Frontline medical services, after all, were expensive, and especially so for a population whose health care had been so neglected for so long. Nye walked a tightrope when it came to public opinion. 
He was certainly an advocate for listening to the working class, to the silent majority, and taking their needs into account. But he also knew that a lack of education had often prevented them from either understanding those needs or, most often, being aware that something could be done about them. He had to be an empathetic teacher as well as a politician. So did people want the NHS? It's hard to say. In one sense, they invited it in 1945, when they voted in the Labour government. In another sense, they had no way of knowing what was coming or what it might mean. And there we have it. Labour have won the general election with a majority of 145 seats. Though defeated, Mr Churchill is acclaimed as a great war leader. But now, out of the election melting pot, comes his successor, Mr Etley, who confidently faces his responsibility to Britain and the world. Our great victory shows that the electorate is ready for a new policy, to face new world conditions, that he believes that Labour have the right policy and also has the men to carry it out. On the face of it, the Labour landslide in 1945 was astonishing. There was widespread disbelief, especially in the United States, that Winston Churchill, the man who won the war, had been thrown out. And by such a large margin as well. Stalin himself was said to be amazed, Amazed that Churchill had agreed to put himself up for election, but surprised he'd lost too. It probably confirmed to him what an unruly and unreliable thing democracy is, not that he had any first-hand experience of it. Most historians now agree that the country swung sharply left during the weeks after Dunkirk. Bevan's great friend, Michael Foote, had put his finger on it when he co-wrote Guilty Men in May 1940, an indictment of the mainly conservative figures who'd appeased Hitler in the 1930s and left Britain militarily and financially unprepared for war. Then, as in the First World War, there was a growing public appreciation that the state could mobilise and redistribute resources efficiently and fairly during a crisis and that the operations of the free market would have led to the collapse of the British war effort in months, if not weeks. The war very quickly became a people's war, mobilising millions in the armed forces, home defence and industrial and agricultural production. The idea that these men and women would want to go back to life as it had been before the war, with its sharply defined class system, was ludicrous. The Labour Party capitalised on the popular feeling that Britain was better with the state involved in the economy and with social services expanded. Fair shares had been a popular cry during the war. It remained popular as peace loomed in 1945. The idea of a national health service was understood by enough people, at least, as being fair shares in action. No one understood the shift in the public mood better than Nye Bevan. Both Nye and Jenny were relieved when Churchill became Prime Minister in 1940. They too marvelled at the now famous rallying speeches – giving a potentially demoralised people the courage to fight on. But, unlike the vast majority of MPs, Nye wasn't going to give Churchill a free ride. Too much power resting with a single man went against everything in which he believed. Nye made a name for himself, making speeches against Churchill's conduct of the war, especially when it came to freedom of the press. Nye, early on, pushed support for Russia as the key to victory and he argued fiercely for a second front. 
In return, Churchill called Nye a squalid nuisance. Nye's perceived lack of patriotism led to attacks on his home, including human faeces posted through the letterbox. Ma, Lee and Jenny would get to the post first to hide all this from the beleaguered MP. Nye also faced personal criticism, as he didn't fight during the First World War. He was arrested after his sister had thrown his call-up papers on the fire. Biographer and current member of the Shadow Cabinet, Nick Thomas-Simmons, relates that Nye received a medical certificate confirming he had nystagmus, an eye ailment common in minors due to working in dark conditions. But in truth, he was opposed to that war, as were many others on the left. He would, he said, choose his own enemy and his own battlefield. World War II was a different story. Nye understood what Churchill was fighting for, and though they differed on many other fronts, agreed with it wholeheartedly. The point of his opposition, as he saw it, was to keep Churchill in check and to fight for the country's post-war future. Labour had joined Churchill's coalition government during the war. In fact, Churchill made Clement Attlee the first deputy prime minister. With the prime minister on so many overseas trips, it meant that Attlee was effectively running the domestic government. With leading Labour giants Ernie Bevin and Herbert Morrison also part of the cabinet, Nye saw a risk that they would go into the election under a coalition with Churchill and not fight for a separate socialist manifesto. Nye had the confidence, when few other people did, that Labour could win an outright majority. This battle with his own cabinet members to encourage them to split from Churchill was ultimately successful. But the enemies he made within his own party made it very unlikely that he would make the cabinet himself. Ah, Winston. Prime Minister, was a very bold speech for you, Clement. Well, you know what they say. Out was the old and in was the new. <laughs> Quite. I woke up with pneumonia once. The new is not always a blessing, as I fear the country may be about to discover. And uh, after more prosaic matters, it's time for my morning constitutional. Are you about to... Um... Actually, I was. The war in Europe may have ended... But my prostate and I are no closer to a date on. The corner stall? Feeling standoffish today, Winston? <laughs> Indeed. I need to keep away from you socialists. If you see anything big and in good working order, you want to nationalise it. <laughs> Clement, or Clem Attlee, the new Prime Minister, appeared to be everything that Churchill wasn't. A chairman rather than a leader laconic rather than loquacious, a listener, not a talker. He served Churchill faithfully in the war cabinet, but appeared to lack any of his predecessors' famous charisma. In fact, Winston is quoted as referring to Attlee as a modest man with much to be modest about. Perhaps his fabled modesty saved Churchill's blushes. In 1945, many voters still recalled the Gallipoli disaster, Churchill's disastrous plan of 1915 to attack the Kaiser and the Central European powers through the supposedly soft underbelly of Turkey. It had ended in complete failure and the deaths of thousands of British and Australasian soldiers. The penultimate man to evacuate the beach at Suvla Bay on the Straits of Gallipoli had been Major Clement Attlee, 
He'd have been the last man off, too. But he went back to rescue a wounded comrade. Did Attlee mention this during the election campaign? Did he try and score points? As surprising as it seems, by modern political standards, he did not. Not even when Churchill used his first election broadcast to claim that Attlee would introduce a Gestapo to Britain if Labour won the election. In 1945, the two men's constituencies were less than 15 miles apart, but Churchill's, in leafy suburban Essex, might well have been on a different planet from Attlee's in the bombed-out Docklands of Limehouse. Their social philosophies too diverged sharply. Attlee wanted a people's peace. Churchill's priority was to maintain the British Empire. Attlee won by a landslide. Here's Mike Wozniak, who plays Attlee in Getting Better. Think of it in terms of a theatrical show. You have to go on after the most popular act, who has just given a literally commanding performance. Attlee had to follow Churchill, who had saved, it seemed, Britain from the Nazis and won the Second World War. His only option, which suited his nature, was to do things very differently. Attlee's genius after 1945 was his ability to manage a cabinet of talented men with inflated egos. Around him were at least two men who believed they were better equipped to be Prime Minister than he was. Even on the morning that Attlee had led Labour to a landslide victory, Herbert Morrison suggested that Attlee should stand down and make way for himself or Foreign Secretary Ernie Bevan. Luckily, Ernie Bevan was having none of it and told Attlee to dash to the palace before Morrison could get his way. Attlee was famously driven everywhere by his wife, Violet. Together, they dashed across London to see the King, who, as per protocol, invited Clem to form a government. There were several other failed leadership coups over the next six years. Fortunately for Attlee, his cabinet all seemed to dislike and distrust each other more than they disliked him. That they worked together as such an effective team was largely Attlee's doing. Nye had his own enemies within the cabinet. When Attlee remarked, Nye is his own worst enemy, Ernie Bevin was quick to respond, Not while I'm alive, he ain't. But whilst Nye himself would often call politics a blood sport, as a minister he was loyal and honoured collective responsibility until he felt forced to resign. He never tolerated any of this behaviour against Clement, He said he did not believe in palace revolutions. Nye Bevan was the youngest member of the team and the most left-wing. The other heavyweights involved in regular infighting included Herbert Morrison, the London Labour boss who had governed the capital and its hospital services since 1934. Morrison had shown the Labour Party that it was possible to win over the middle classes by sound and efficient administration. Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor, an old Etonian and son of the chaplain to Queen Victoria, had been converted to socialism as an undergraduate at Cambridge. Dalton is crucial to this story, as he ultimately supported Nye on the method to pay for the NHS. Ernie Bevan, orphaned at six and a farm labourer by the age of eight, was the man who built the Transport and General Workers' Union into the largest labour organisation in the free world. Sir Stafford Cripps, a QC whose working day started at four in the morning and whose diet consisted of water, carrots and various pulses. And there was the Minister for Education, Ellen Wilkinson, 
who had led the Jarrow protest march from her blighted northeastern shipbuilding town to London in 1936, and who, standing at a single inch over five feet, was known as the Pocket Battleship, or the Mighty Atom. Three of these ministers died in the saddle, worn out by ten years of hard graft in high government. They'd been members of the Churchill War Cabinet too. Here's Mike Wozniak again. It's hard not to wonder if someone like Attlee could have captured the public imagination in the same way today, when more Churchillian politicians, handy with a soundbite and content to play a caricature, fit so neatly within the barrage of social media and political mudslinging that has only devolved since 1945. Attlee's choice of Nye Bevan as Labour's Minister of Health was certainly not predicted by anyone. In fact, when choosing who to serve in his cabinet, Attlee had a problem. He hadn't expected to win a majority of 145 seats. As a result, he hadn't even met most of the elected MPs. In order to choose his cabinet, he did what the stationary lovers amongst us might see as perfectly sensible. He had bits of paper laid out on the table, each with the name of potential ministers, with jottings of their strengths and weaknesses. It turned out that Attlee was a big supporter of Nye. He respected his powerful speeches and his fighting spirit. There were two options for Nye on the day Attlee chose the cabinet. Education or health and housing. The truth was that the education department already had a plan in place, led by Rab Butler during the coalition years. And while this plan didn't axe private schools as many people had hoped, it was relatively uncontroversial. Health was a far more complicated situation. Even at this early stage, some of the leading doctors were getting ready for a fight. When Lloyd George introduced the panel system in 1911, the medical establishment had fought tooth and nail against it. Lloyd George said it was one of the biggest battles he ever faced. Considering he was Prime Minister during the First World War, this was a bold statement. The outgoing Tory health minister, Henry Willink, had already started to make broad concessions to the doctors, causing the left wing of the Labour Party to doubt whether the full beverage plan would be achieved. They suspected that Willink was negotiating against the intent of Parliament. So, at the very last minute, Attlee made Ellen Wilkinson Education Secretary and instead gave Nye health and housing. On giving Nye the job, Attlee told him, You've been a rebel. Now we'll see if you can construct something. 